Welcome to Feel Better, Live More Bite Size, your weekly dose of positivity and optimism to get you ready for the weekend. Today's Bite Size is brought to you by AG1, one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I've come across, and I myself have been drinking it regularly for over five years. It contains vitamins, minerals, probiotics, prebiotics, digestive enzymes, and so much more and can help with energy, focus, gut health, digestion, and support a healthy immune system. If you go to drinkag1.com forward slash live more, they are giving my listeners a very special offer, a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first order. See all details at drinkag1.com forward slash live more. Today's clip is from episode 200 of the podcast with a pioneer in the field of integrative health, Dr. Andrew Weil. Chronic unresolved inflammation is now a widely accepted cause of many serious health conditions. In this short clip, Andrew shares five dietary tips that can help reduce inflammation to help our short-term and our long-term health. There's a term at the moment that's a buzzword everywhere, which is inflammation, right? A lot of people now are talking about chronic inflammation as being the root cause of many of these uh, chronic lifestyle diseases that are afflicting so many of us. When did you first become aware of, I guess, chronic inflammation as a root cause of disease? Did you know about it before it came into the, the sort of common vernacular? I think I started writing and talking about that in the early, early or mid 1980s. And, and uh, what first caught my attention uh, were articles in the scientific literature um, that made it look as if there were commonalities in the origin of diseases, disease entities that I had been taught had nothing to do with each other. Uh, and that in fact, uh, that coronary artery disease and cancer and neurodegenerative diseases, that there might be a common root there in chronic inappropriate inflammation. That is a completely new idea and hypothesis. And I just saw that out there. And it's, I have a good sense of knowing when things are right and that there's going to be evidence to support that. So I got onto that idea very early and it excited me because if these uh, broad categories of disease that we had previously thought had nothing in common. If in fact they have a common root, then there's a common strategy for uh, dealing with them and reducing the risk of them. And that is by doing everything you can to contain inappropriate inflammation. There's a lot of influences on uh, one's inflammatory status, some that you can do things about and some that you can't. Um, What particularly caught my attention was the possibility that uh, dietary changes could reduce uh, inappropriate inflammation. How do you describe inflammation or chronic inflammation to your patients or your students? Well, I usually say, you know, we're all, we all know inflammation on the surface of the body. It's local redness, heat, swelling, and pain at an area that's injured or under attack. And that although it can be uncomfortable, inflammation is the cornerstone of the body's healing response. It's how the body gets more nourishment and more immune activity to an area that, that needs it. Uh, but inflammation is so powerful and it's so potentially destructive that if it persists, if it escapes its limits in time and space, then it becomes destructive. 
Uh, and in the short term, it can lead to uh, allergy and autoimmunity. But long term, it looks as if it increases the risk of a whole diverse range of very serious chronic diseases. You know, I think that uh, coronary artery disease begins as inflammation in the lining of arteries. Uh, Alzheimer's disease clearly begins as inflammation in the brain, and that's why uh, anti-inflammatory agents like ibuprofen and turmeric have a preventive effect. Um, and cancer is linked here, too, because uh, anything that increases inflammation also increases cell proliferation. Uh, the two are totally linked. And, and when cells proliferate more, the risk of malignant transformation is increased. In terms of foods and this anti-inflammatory diet that you put together many years ago, I wonder if we could sort of talk about what this kind of dietary pattern looks like. Is it more about the sort of general types of foods you're eating or can we see within that some specific? Both, both. And I developed this by using the Mediterranean diet as a template because we have so much scientific evidence for that way of eating being associated with, uh, you know, optimum health and longevity. And it's a way of eating that uh, in no way restricts the pleasure of food, which I think is extremely important. And I tweaked that by adding Asian influences to it because I've spent a lot of time in Asian countries and there are uh, food, specific foods and, and uh, beverages that I, that in, particularly in Japan, uh, China, uh, India that I think are, you know, very helpful. So, um, first of all, it's not a diet, you know, it's because diets are things that we go off of. So it's an eating plan for life. And the, the first rule is to stop eating or greatly reduce consumption of refined, processed and manufactured foods. I mean, that's simple. It's that, that kind of food, food being made by somebody else, uh, that is really at the root of a lot of our, uh, of these chronic illnesses in, in our societies of obesity, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and so forth. Uh, so the first step is simply to try to uh, eliminate refined, processed, and manufactured food. And then, you know, next is eating a, a variety of high-quality fresh produce, um, especially vegetables. Uh, you know, fruits, yes, but fruits are... are often concentrated sugar sources, and I think should be, you should be more moderate about that. But an array of vegetables with all different colors because those are all protective compounds. I think it is good to reduce the amount of animal protein in the diet. I don't tell people to become uh, complete vegetarians or, you know, I, I myself eat fish and vegetables, uh, but I think restricting animal foods is a good idea. Um, in, increasing the consumption of uh, plant protein in the form of legumes, soy protein, for example, um, using olive oil as a major, uh, as a main cooking oil, and being very careful about the kinds of fats that you consume, uh, making sure that you're getting omega-3 fatty acids, uh, which are strongly anti-inflammatory by eating oily fish uh, or supplements of, uh, derived from algae if you don't want to eat fish, um, using spices like turmeric and ginger, which are powerful anti-inflammatory agents, tea, uh, especially green tea, which has uh, many helpful antioxidant properties, forms of carbohydrate that don't raise blood sugar quickly. I I'm not anti-carb, but I think uh, it's important to distinguish between types of carbohydrates that digest quickly and especially products made from flour and pulverized grains as opposed yeah. to 
truly whole grains that are cracked, either entire or cracked in big pieces. Um, and uh, I have an anti-inflammatory diet pyramid, and at the very top is dark chocolate, which I think is a health food and, I, and uh, consumed in moderation, I think is very good for you. The first step when you were describing that was remove or eliminate these highly processed foods. And it just makes me think of something I, I've been sort of contemplating a lot recently, Andrew. And I guess the, the question itself is artificial, but it's just, a, I guess, a, you know, a thought experiment. Is it more important to exclude these problematic, modern, highly processed, I guess, not even foods, food-like substances? Food yeah. Or is it more important to, I guess... We can keep those in, but add in some of these so-called, you know, superfoods or, you know, your dark chocolate, your berries, those sort of things. I mean, how would you look at that sort of conundrum? Uh, I think it is more important to reduce or eliminate the, the processed stuff. I, I think too. it is really unhealthy and uh, on all sorts of levels. It's the wrong fats, the wrong types of carbohydrates, not enough of the protective elements. So I guess you could make up for the protective elements by adding some of those other things back. But you're not going to take away the damage being done by the, you know, the unhealthy fats and the unhealthy forms of carbohydrates and the additives. You mentioned green tea. Mm -hmm. And I know you are a particular fan of green tea. In, in particular, from what I understand, it's matcha. Can you tell me about, yes. you know, when you became aware of matcha, what happened there and why you're so passionate about people drinking more of it? Uh, when I was growing up, tea was something drunk by old people and sick people. And I drank iced tea, heavily sweetened. Um, when I was 17, I had a chance to live in Japan with Japanese families. And I really came to love green tea. Uh, very good. And I'd seen nothing like that in, in America. And I was also introduced at that time to matcha in the Japanese tea ceremony. Matcha is the powdered green tea that's whisked into a, a froth and consumed in the tea ceremony. And I began bringing that back when I would go to Japan and turn people onto it. Nobody had ever heard of it uh, in, in the States. It's been quite amazing to me to watch uh, how fashionable matcha has become in recent years. There's a great deal of research on the health benefits of tea in general, on green tea in particular, uh, a lot due to its antioxidant uh, content. Uh, matcha is different in that the leaves are grown in a way that increases the content of antioxidants. And, and it also has a high content of an amino acid called L-theanine that has a calming effect. And I think that modifies the effect of caffeine uh, and makes the stimulation of, of tea and matcha in particular um, very different from that of coffee. It does not have the jangling effect of, of coffee. It does not leave you with a crash when the stimulation wears off. People say it causes a state of calm alertness. There's a long association of tea in general and matcha in particular with meditation. And uh, again, very different association from, from that of coffee. Um, I think matcha has been associated with contemplation, with meditation, and the ritual of preparing it. You know, when I whisk it in a bowl, I find that to be very meditative and relaxing. I think what you're speaking to there is something that, again, I think is a missing piece in modern life and even in modern day health promotion, which is, it's not only what you're doing, it's how you're doing mm -hmm. it. So, 
you know, if you're taking five or 10 minutes to prepare your green mm-hmm. tea, mm-hmm. it's not just a habit. It's, it's a ritual. It's a time to dedicate to yourself, to actually be present with a certain process. And, you know, I'm interested as in your view on this, but I've been thinking recently that we do science we, we look at green tea or we look at the polyphenols in coffee and we go, oh, this is a great thing. And so in our rushed lives, we, you know, we make a quick coffee, we slug it down and we go and then we say, oh yeah, it's got loads of polyphenols and it's really good for me. And I kind of feel, have we lost something somewhere? Because for me, for example, I do drink coffee. I've, I've limited it. To, I know what works for me, but I have it first thing in the morning. Yeah. Now I know people will say, because I'm an early riser, I'm usually up by five. People will say it's, you know, it's probably not with your circadian biology the perfect time to have it. Mm-hmm. However, I would argue that, you know what, that hour, hour and a half in the morning before my wife and kids get up is my sacred time yeah. for myself. And yeah. I make it in a very ritualistic way. I I don't yeah. slug it down while doing something else. I'm paying attention to it. And I, I feel actually for me on balance, when you take into account yeah. everything, that forms a very important part of my day. And, you know, I, I feel more and more we're missing this piece yeah, I, when we talk I about health. You, I agree with you, and I, I would extend that to eating in general. And one of the things that um, has struck me, when I, especially when I spent time in Italy and in France, is how different the attitude is of people toward eating. Um, you know, that, that in the U.S., you are rushed out of restaurants. Uh, it's in a hurry. Uh, there's a lot of concern about, you know, is this healthy? Is this not healthy? I think in, um, in continental Europe, especially in France and Italy, uh, there's so much more attention and time given to the enjoyment of food, uh, to lingering over it, to sharing, uh, eating in company as a social ritual. And I think that has, you know, as much to do with uh, lowered rates of obesity, for example, as, you know, what people are eating. Hope you enjoyed that bite-sized clip. Do spread the love by sharing this episode with your friends and family. And if you want more, why not go back and listen to the original full conversation with my guest. If you enjoyed this episode, I think you will really enjoy my bite-sized Friday email. It's called the Friday Five. And each week I share things that I do not share on social media. It contains five short doses of positivity, articles or books that I'm reading, quotes that I'm thinking about, exciting research I've come across and so much more. I really think you're going to love it. The goal is for it to be a small yet powerful dose of feel good to get you ready for the weekend. You can sign up for it free of charge at drchatterjee.com forward slash Friday five. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Make sure you have pressed subscribe and I'll be back next week with my long form conversation on Wednesday and the latest episode of Bite Science next Friday.